Before we get started, I want to say a couple of things. One is there is continual references to childhood emotional abuse and neglect in this episode. Secondly, I'm going to be talking about how deep shame can come from early relationships in our family of origin. I'm going to be talking about a general psychological theory that informs a lot of how I think about this, but every person's story is different. As we're talking about how parenting develops our view of ourself as we grow up in our family, if you are a parent listening, I want you to know that you only have to get it right part of the time. You don't have to be perfect at all. The stories that we're talking about here are stories of immense emotional abuse and neglect. Lastly, I want to put a religious trauma warning on this. We're listening to a few kids' Sunday school lessons, and at best, it's a blast from the past, and at worst, it could be incredibly triggering. I'm really excited about this episode, and I also want to make sure that you can take care of yourself as we talk through some of these things. Hello, Sam. Hi, Charlie. I hear you two want to know about how to ask Jesus into your hearts and go to heaven. How about I use some different colored pages to help us understand why we need to be saved and how to be saved. It's called the Gospel Story in Color for Kids. That's right, the Gospel Story in Color for Kids. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. Well, Sam, well, Charlie, let's take a look. First page we look at is the black page. Now, what do you think that stands for, Charlie? That stands for sin. Lying? Hating? Disobeying? Let me just break in here for a minute to say that you might be getting an idea why some organizations stop calling this the black page because of the way it implicitly or otherwise perpetuated racism by equating sin with blackness. Now many of the trainings call it the dark page, which isn't really much better. Swearing? Stealing? Cheating? Fighting? These things and many other things are wrong to do. They're sin. God's word, the Bible, tells us that all have sinned. That means I have sinned, and so have you. And that makes us both sinners. But the Bible has some good news for us, Charlie. Some good news for us, Sam. Listen to this now. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's a picture of a heart that's black with sin. That's what it means when we're sinners. So this is the story you've been told. You did something wrong. You lied. You disobeyed. You said a bad word. And that makes your heart dirty or broken or black. Is that a funny joke? Yeah, I have a heart. You have a heart? Do you have a heart? Yeah, you do. <laughs> Everyone has a heart, right? This is audio taken from a guy explaining this to his two young kids. They look about two years old and four years old. Well, God, yeah, he has a heart. Do you have a heart? 
<laughs> Was that a funny joke? Yes. Do you have a heart? You have a heart? Do you have a heart? Yeah, you do. <laughs> Everyone has a heart, right? And and do you know what happens when we misbehave and we we don't obey? That's a sin, right? Do you know what sin does to our heart? It puts little black spots in our hearts. Like that. It's a little black spot, right? That might be another spot in our hearts, huh? And our, our hearts start getting full of all these little spots everywhere. And we're like, oh, but it's okay. It's just a little spot. And it's another little spot. And it's a little spot. But then, but then our, our heart gets full of these spots. Now that we've heard the first part, of course, there is a solution to the problem. But then one day, we might, we might, we might meet Jesus. And Jesus, when we invite him into our hearts, and we say to him, Jesus, I'm sorry I was bad. I'm sorry I have sin in my heart. And, and, and so when you pray that, and when you ask Jesus to forgive you, what happens? So what happens is that we pray, we bring our sins, confessing them to the cross. Oh, all our sin stays on that side of the cross and our heart is made full again. So the story is your heart is dirty and broken and you need Jesus to clean it up or completely replace it if you're going to have a relationship with God. Maybe you've had the feeling that there's something at your core that's broken or dirty, and maybe you've tried the prescribed solution. You've asked Jesus into your heart, confessed, and asked him to take away the sin. But you still feel like there's something in you that is bad or broken or disgusting. Let me tell you another story. You're a baby and you wake up in the middle of the night because you need a diaper change. You cry and no one comes. Now this happens to a lot of babies, but imagine this happens to you night after night, or when you're tired, you aren't rocked. And when you need food, you might get a bottle or you might not. Or imagine you're a little older and you get scared sometimes, like any kid, but instead of getting snuggles, you get screamed at. You're so needy, your parent tells you in a disgusted voice. Let me tell you what happens then. There's this feeling that comes in. It's deeper than words. There's something at your core that's broken or dirty or disgusting. One of the, you know, we used to talk about children who are abused in terrible ways, and then we talk about kids who are just neglected. This is Dr. Karen Purvis. She spent her career helping children from hard places, kids in foster care or orphanages. She passed away a few years ago, but her work continues to help foster and adoptive parents create safety for kids who have experienced the worst the world has to offer. And then we found out that being just neglected was as damning or worse than being harmed in unspeakable ways. Uh, The message of abuse is I don't like you, and the message of, of neglect is you don't exist. So these children want to know why they feel, why do they have blackness inside? They, they feel black inside. I had a client who described this feeling once, and this is shared with permission. He said it felt like he had ink inside, that it would get on other people if they got too close. 
When we don't get our needs met early on, it creates this feeling like there's something wrong with you, like there's something at your core that drives people away. It's how your attachment system makes sense of your experiences. As a baby, you don't think, there must be something wrong with my mom because she's not meeting my needs. You think, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something about me that means I don't get the love and care that I need. It creates this feeling of defectiveness. But the reality is, you're not defective. You're in a dysfunctional family. Now let me explain for a minute what we need in order to not develop this feeling inside. Or rather, let me have Dr. Purvis explain it. The baby coos, the parent coos back. Affectionate pickup, so the parent holds them affectionately. There's your warmth, there's your touch. There's this vibration, there's the breathing, your heart is beating. That's a bath that baby's getting all the time. So let me just ask you this, I'll stop here just a flash. How did you know somebody loved you? How do you know somebody loves you? They hug you, so you feel a hug. How else? What else would you know? Their eyes look at you. What about their face? Maybe their face is warm and caring, right? And when they look at you, you just know you're pretty darn cute. <laughs> you know? If you think about attachment, everything that tells you how to make an attachment bond is delivered through the senses. So we're going to do things with our children like we're going to be touching their shoulder when we talk or we're going to be holding two hands when we talk and we're going to be in close proximity like we would have been here. We're going to be making valuing eye contact and we're going to be asking that our face carry the beauty of who they are. We learn about our own beauty in the face of our caregiver. But when this doesn't happen, it creates this feeling within us that there's something rotten at our core. Something wretched that will drive others away. Something they can't stand to be around. If I don't get the care I needed, it must be because there's something wrong with me. There's something at the core of who I am that is disgusting. This is everywhere in the literature. Where not getting your attachment needs met in a really significant way creates this feeling like there is something about you that is repulsive, that you're dirty or defective in some way. So it really made me think again about these Sunday school lessons. Valentine's Day is a lovely opportunity to teach kids about God's love. I'm Nathan with Kids Enjoying Jesus, and I'm going to show you a simple heart-themed gospel object lesson for kids. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's usually talking about who you really are on the inside, the part of you that thinks and feels and chooses. Let's take a look at what the Bible says about the real you, your heart. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God says he sees a huge problem in your heart, and he calls this problem sin. So I'm gonna write sin on our heart right here. You do things like lying, cheating, fighting, and wanting your own way because you were born with a heart that wants to sin. Even if you try to be really good, you will still sin because you have sin in your heart. I can try to cover this sin up or hide it, but it's still there. I can't fix it or change a sinful heart, and neither can you. The worst part is a sinful heart will keep you away from God forever because he is perfect, so perfect that sin can never stay close to him.
That part really got me thinking about how in attachment trauma, it feels like there's something at my core that drives other people away. Think about Brene Brown's definition of shame. It's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. All sin deserves the punishment of death and separation from God's wonderful love and awesomeness. God wants to make your heart new. When you believe Jesus is really God's perfect son who died and came back to life to take the punishment for your sin, God saves you. He says you'll be saved from sin and he takes the perfectness of Jesus and puts it in your heart so that when he looks at you, he sees the perfect heart of Jesus instead of your sin. Your heart is made new. Having a new heart makes you ready to live with God forever in heaven someday. This Sunday school lesson reminded me of something I'd read in a book about attachment. How many of you like sugar and like to eat things that are sweet? I know I do. It's always so delicious. But what if I wanted to put this sugar into this jar? This jar is full of dirt. That's nasty. How many of you want dirt for a snack? That'd be so gross. But what do I do? I know. Maybe, maybe if I just put enough sugar it will kind of take away the dirt. I remember reading a case study in this book about attachment. It talks about this girl who was emotionally abused as a child. She was told that she was broken, defective, and unlovable. When the girl asks for basic reasonable needs to be met, her mother tells her, you're being selfish. And as she gets older, she really tries to hide the fact that she's selfish. The therapist writes that she remembers everyone's birthday. She's always ready with a compliment. She seems content to settle for second best. No one must ever know what she truly is. She's trying to hide who she truly is with these good works. Sugar is so delicious and, and so sweet. Maybe if I just put it in, it'll, it'll make up for the dirt. Oh no, it disappeared into the dirt. That's not helping. It's not taking away the dirt. Guys... It's kind of like this with you and I, with our heart. If this jar represents our heart, then this dirt is like sin. And sometimes we might try to do a lot of really good things and do a lot of good works, but it doesn't take away the sin. That doesn't solve the problem. I could even try to just take a nice clean cloth and clean the outside of this jar, but that's not going to take away the dirt. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, then you still have that sin in your heart and you need him to make you clean. Now, I want to first acknowledge that feeling bad when we do bad things is a healthy thing when it drives us to make it right. But that's very different than feeling like I am bad, like the core of who I am is tarnished and undeserving of love. So we have two different explanations for this feeling. One story says, you feel bad because you've done bad things. This feeling inside is the evidence of a disgusting heart. The other story says, you feel unlovable because you haven't experienced yourself as lovable. And I want to clarify that this sort of shame can come from attachment, but it can come from a lot of other places too. Like growing up in a community or society that says you are lesser because of your skin color or culture or sexual orientation or any aspect of you that is deemed shameful. Danielle and I talked about this earlier in the season when we saw church groups come to our apartment complex and gather up all the kids, many of whom were marginalized in one or more ways, whether it was income or race or refugee or immigrant status, 
All these kids have the potential to get the message, you are lesser than in our white supremacist society. And the church group came and told them because of bad things they'd done, their hearts were like dirty rags. Danielle wrote about this in her book, wondering how is this good news to a group of kids who have already gotten the message from society that they are broken, dirty, or defective. They don't belong and they are not worthy of love. So when that feeling does come up, like there's something dirty in my heart, Which story is it? Do we feel that way because we've acted badly or because we've been treated badly? Am I feeling the shame because I've sinned or because I've gotten the message that I'm unlovable? Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist and author of Anatomy of the Soul, Soul of Shame, and a book coming out this fall called The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. In The Soul of Shame, he writes that shame wants us to tell our stories in such a way that we are the sole responsible party for the way we feel. In other words, if I feel bad, it's because of something that I've done that's bad. So I got a chance to talk to him more about this. It is true that certain things happen to us in the world that evoke shame. If I'm the 10-year-old boy that comes to my dad with my 92% that I've been waiting for four years to get on my math test. And here's my 92%. And my dad says, well, where's the other 8%? My dad is, if you were to ask him, he's not trying to shame me. He's not trying to make me feel bad. He's probably trying to do the best he can to help me do even better. But he's not aware of how his own unfinished business is translating into the way that he's now parenting me. Now, by the time I'm 18 years of age, the story that I will be telling you is that I feel bad because I haven't done well enough as a student or as a son and so forth. I won't be telling a story. I think I feel bad because my dad didn't get his unfinished business taken care of. And so what's really important then is that shame is something that happens in the context of the stories that we experience, right? It's voiced upon me, but almost immediately I become a collaborator and I agree with the story. And I tell a story that as I tell it over and over and over again, I shame myself. The cognitive element of this is one of condemnation, right? As you, as you rightly said, like, I don't, I just didn't do something bad, but I am bad. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough in a hundred different ways. And then, you know, lastly, we talk about this idea of how shame's kind of final endpoint is its mission of violent abandonment. Like it's abandonment. Like there is a sense in which I'm ashamed and therefore like you don't want to stick around in the room. And when I'm left in the isolation of my own mind with all that stuff banging around in my head with nobody else having access to it, shame does not have the ability to be a godly grief that leads me to repentance. It leads me ultimately to creation, to creativity. It leads to death. And so hence there's hence so much connection in the biblical narrative between exper- experiences and expressions of sin and shame and this notion that as human beings in our shame we don't go to God God has to come and find us Well one of the things that it does uh, first of all it truncates Uh, my imagination to tell a story. So if I'm the 10 year old with a 92%, the story is there's something wrong with me for not working hard enough. That's the short version of this. 
I'm going to be cut off in like, I don't have the sense that I am connected to the world, connected to other people with whom we are collectively telling the story for each of us. Like we're always collaborating in our storytelling efforts. The question is with whom am I collaborating to tell my story? But most of us, the more cut off we are and the more that shame does that to us, the less aware that I am even collaborating. And that story just gets kind of like a little more layered and nuanced. If we're going to understand shame, this feeling inside that says you're broken and defective, we need to understand the broader story. I got a voicemail from a listener talking about the stories that were available to her about this feeling. As a child, I was taught that inherently my heart was bent towards rebellion against God and therefore bent towards rebellion against my parents. Uh, And so any kind of dysregulation that I experienced as a child, whether that was big feelings of anger or big feelings of sadness or anxiety, the way that my brain processed that was that there was something inherently wrong with me because I acted out um, and the inability of my parents to connect with me ultimately fell on my shoulders and it was very confusing for me as a child um, because I felt like I had to accept that I was doing something wrong when in reality I just didn't know how to regulate This is such a common example. We have an emotion, and then our parents give us the message that the emotion isn't okay. Now, there's a whole reason behind this about our parents' attachment style and their own discomfort with emotions, but that doesn't matter when you're a kid. You can't tell yourself, oh, my parents are uncomfortable with anger or sadness or worry. You just feel like there's something wrong with me that I'm feeling this way. And because this feeling comes from your heart, it feels like your heart is dirty. And it feels like this thing within us is getting in the way of the closeness and connection we want. Ultimately, I just wanted to be with my parents, but I didn't know that they wanted to be with me um, because I was always sort of processing the fact that my dysregulation was a problem and that it was evidence of the fact that I was bad and that I would always want to choose sin more than relationship. And it fits this gospel message framework. Yes, there is something wrong within me, deep inside, that Jesus needs to fix. Again, we end up telling ourselves that I'm solely responsible for the way I feel. And we don't ever consider that we might feel the way we do because of the way we've been treated by others. Now, I don't always think it's either or. There are times when feeling bad about what you've done is definitely appropriate. But that means that you have an inner compass of what is right or wrong. Something that's telling you that wasn't right. It doesn't mean you're defective. It actually means you're a healthy human being. But again, there's a huge difference between I've done a bad thing, but I'm still lovable, and because I've sinned, I don't deserve connection with God. This next song is called 127. 
thinking about this with that album we've been talking about. Son, I Loved You at Your Darkest by Acidies Burn. The name of the album itself evokes that Sunday school imagery. And to me, so much of the album is about shame. He says, shame is the anchor tied around my ankle. And here's some more Sunday school imagery. Unless you part my ribs like the sea and make a stone beat, then there's no hope for me. Later, he specifically says he alone is responsible for the way he feels. He says, How long will we blame the devils on our shoulders and pose like angels on the outside when all I am is a monster? How long will we blame the devils on our shoulders and pose like angels on the outside? When all I am is a monster All I am is a monster And I remember playing this in my car a couple of years ago, really loud, and then the soft song came on. We talked about that last time, how on a lot of these heavy albums, there's a soft song in the middle or at the end. And as I paid attention, I felt like it became so clear to me what was missing in his story of shame. Now, before we go forward, I want to say that I'm not psychologically assessing the songwriters. I'm just looking at this as a piece of art that helps us understand ourselves and each other. So there's this part where he's screaming about being a monster. And then it gets quiet and soft. It's a song about how his dad abandoned his family when he was young. And how he's been trying to make sense of it ever since. Dead man, were you ever alive? Or was I just a seed? Buried deep inside some woman you had Right before you crawled out of her bed and crept down the hall Did you think of me? Did you even for a second hesitate in the doorway? It's just something that I like to know Though I'd still love you if you told me that you just walked away This is the sort of thing that can definitely create attachment trauma. It doesn't always, but it certainly can. Actually, I was listening to a podcast the other day with Alan Stroof, an attachment researcher, on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, and they touched on this really important point. Yeah. The, the, uh, let me say one other thing about the study. Yes. Um, there was another couple of features that were important. 
in addition to measuring the early temperament and early parenting, we needed to measure uh, the context in which the families were raising the children. So we always had measures of the stress the families were experiencing, and we always had measures of their social support. And those two things were very important. And that was important to us for two reasons. Number one, it immediately removed any tendency to be blaming parents, which attachment theorists are often accused of. Yes, especially mothers. Yes, this is mother bashing. No. Number one, anytime we took into account the stress the mother was under and the support available to her, we could account for the baby's anxious attachment. I mean, of course, what parents do matters. Yes. Obviously, that's what infants experience. The infants don't experience your social support system, but you do. Yes. And your social support system allows you to be emotionally available to the baby. So it's our responsibility as a society that there's so much anxious attachment. It's not the responsibility of these individual mothers. They need a lot more support than yes. our society gives them. In other words, what they found is that parents, even when they're trying their very best, if there are these extra stressors going on, it's going to be hard for them to show up for their kids in the way that they need. And that's not through any fault of their own. And it makes me think about the writer of the song, what his mom must have been going through. Listen to this part of the song. Mother's heart breaks like the water inside of her. Dead man, is it being high that makes you alive? It makes you leave behind three boys and a wife in '89. As the track marks inch their way up here, my mother taught my brothers and I not to call you daddy, but to call you father. The story is heart-wrenching. So maybe he feels like a monster because of all the sins he's committed. That's definitely possible, and that's the Sunday school story. But what if there's this feeling that there's something monstrous about me that those I love don't stay close? Let me end with one more observation from attachment literature. It comes from Juliet Hopkins, a psychologist who worked with children who experienced emotional abuse or neglect. One way psychologists often gain insight into a child's psyche is through their drawings. They will ask a child to draw themselves as an animal to better understand how the child views themselves and where they fit in the world. She found that children who had experienced this type of trauma would often draw themselves as, quote, a physically repellent or unstrokable creature. So imagine a six-year-old who is asked to draw himself and he chooses a creature that no one would want to snuggle with. Consider for a moment what it would mean if a child drew themselves as a rat or a tortoise, a crocodile or a hedgehog or a monster.
This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find the links to our website, handles, and email in the description of the podcast episode. Support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. DL's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>